What's up, gang? Van Jackson here. A while back, a friend of the pod asked me what subscriptions I'd recommend for news and analysis on world politics. And it was actually a hard question to answer on the spot, believe it or not. But I've got a great answer now. Mother effing World Politics Review. If you're a fan of Undiplomatic, you should be reading World Politics Review. It's obviously worldly. It's in the title. Uh, it's not obsessed with Trump. And it has a great mix of analysis and journalism. Also, why do you think I'm doing this pitch? World Politics Review is an official sponsor of the show. And the best way to back us right now is to back them. So give them a chance. They're offering a 25% discount subscription for undiplomatic listeners. And if you want to subscribe to their daily newsletter, which you should, you can do it for free. Just visit wpr.pub undiplomatic. That's wpr.pub undiplomatic. That'll get you the free newsletter, and it'll also provide you the code for the 25% discount should you want to subscribe. So get on the train, wpr.pub slash undiplomatic. Peace. What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to The Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, full house with uh, Pete McKenzie, hey. Kiara Mitchell, Hello. Gabby Magnuson, What's up? and Jake Dello. What's up, man? Two quick hits before we get into the show. One is a shout, actually, they're both shout outs. One is a shout out to Carl Friedhoff, a buddy who works at the Chicago Council on Foreign Affairs. He has got some um, new polling. They do, again, we've talked about this many times, like some of the best polling on the planet for foreign policy. And they've, yeah. they've got new uh, survey data that he has packaged into um, a, a briefing paper, like an analysis. So like layering on some value add onto the data. The basic gist of it is that there's widespread it's about uh, the u.s korea alliance and about the ongoing burden sharing negotiations and the kind of veiled threat of u.s troop withdrawal or partial withdrawal as part of those negotiations which are not going well because trump uh, imposed a five billion dollar 400 percent increase in um, extortion rent seeking burden sharing demands uh, on south korea which is like it's just an obscene amount of money that he's seeking south korea to pay it's out of the blue it's kind of arbitrary and so everybody views it as extortion like that's the popular view because there is no actual justification for the the fucking amount of money he's asking for yeah <laughs> and of course he doesn't value alliances anyway particularly south korea and so in that context uh the chicago council did this polling and they found in south korea like huge huge support still for the alliance still despite trump a like largely favorable impression of the united states but this threat to withdraw troops reframes how south koreans view everything with the alliance so like in broad terms most people see the alliance as mutually beneficial which makes sense but if the u.s pulls out troops even partially it changes how the alliance is viewed, which should not be surprising, but it changes it to view the alliance as favoring only the United States. Further reduces confidence in the alliance, and that leads South Korea to do things like we talked about in the last episode, where it's like, 
Okay, mm. they have to get longer range precision guided munitions. Okay, they have to go nuclear. Okay, they have to align with China because China is always going to be in their neighborhood for the rest of eternity and we are not. Yeah. There are all these sort of uh, geopolitical consequences and, and risks, frankly, that accrue from the United States declining credibility. And when you parse out all the data, the the key f insight is that like the credibility will take the biggest hit because of, of troop withdrawal and even the prospect of troop withdrawal, which is like what is being flirted with right now has negative effects on perceptions of the U.S. So the least reassuring thing you can do is withdraw troops. And there's a caveat that he acknowledges on Twitter, which is like my my take of, look, the the current configuration of troops in South Korea for the U.S. is kind of arbitrary, 28,500 assigned troops that number is not based on like the requirements of deterrence that number is like a just a political arbitrary thing that was agreed to between um south korea's president Im young bak back in the day and obama there is room to change that or to reduce those numbers for reasons of deterrence for reasons of shoring up the alliance but that has to be the frame so like what is the frame when troops are withdrawn if the frame is uh, failed burden-sharing negotiations or a threat to withdrawal, then it destroys the alliance, basically, to pull troops out. Uh, but if you're pulling troops out as a move to bolster deterrence against a, like, you know, modern adversary or whatever, it's a completely mm. different uh, effect and perception. So it's a great read. And then the other shout out to uh, my man Siddharth Mohandas, who uh, worked with in the Obama administration a little bit. He is at the Asia Group now, which is like this uh, sort of geopolitical consultancy. And um, he had a piece that he co-authored in Foreign Affairs. I'm forgetting the co-author's name, forgive me. But he was arguing for a council of democracies. I think they were calling it a D10. And the, <laughs> this, I, I was not familiar with the idea before. Uh, or like they associated it with Boris Johnson which is like sketchy really? on the face of it to me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the idea of like a concert of democracies has a long, much longer precedent than Boris Johnson. I'm, I'm not quite sure yeah. what Boris has to do with this, but it's just basically like the G7 plus, you know, South Korea and Australia and one other country. And the idea is just to get, get the 10 highest functioning democracies together to, I mean, the way they pitch it is like to save multilateralism, but it's really a vehicle for dealing with China in the most strategic way possible in my mind, which is to subsume China into the threats to democracy. So like mm. you're decentering China as bad guy and you're centering the problems that China feeds, like kleptocracy, like oligarchy and inequality, like environmental degradation, right? And so there are like misinformation, structural violence against uh, peripheral societies, developing countries. We should be, and this is like a progressive foreign policy take too, frankly, like we should mm. be oriented to addressing threats to democracy. And to the extent that states are threatening democracy, 
we need to deal with those states, right? But the way that like everything has tilted or converted in the Trump administration is that like it's all about the boogeyman. It's all about 10 foot tall China and making them the supervillain. It's not that they're not a supervillain. It's just like it's not. Yeah, there are others too. Yeah. Like we were missing the connections. And mm. we risk treating China as if it's like unfixable. The reason China is a threat is because of its conduct. But if it could rewire its own conduct, or if we could shape things in such a way that its conduct doesn't have negative effects on democracy, then the problem goes away, man. So mm. we should care about you know, techno-genocides and inequality and structural <laughs> violence in the environment. Um, and we should care about China insofar as it worsens all those things. Um, so it's kind of like a reframing. And because it's all democracies that would be in this multilateral grouping, there's a higher likelihood of collective action to address inequality, both um, between North and South and across uh, developed countries like North North. We can like America has dramatic inequality that has produced horrible outcomes. The D10 can be a vehicle to support that or to remedy that. Um, and if you have non-democracies in the club, there's almost no chance that they're going to be able to address corruption and inequality measures that you would need uh, to address. This is interesting and promising in my mind, um, but also like TBD. So, but I just wanted to give it a shout out. Let's do Prediction Market, where we get Vans to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. All right, for Prediction Market this week, for question one, will there be any security agreements made between Iran and the CCP before the end of the year following a $400 billion economic investment by China in the region? So this is a very interesting question. For the prediction, I'm going to say no. Okay. But there are clearly closer ties forging between Iran and China. And it seems to me that it's entirely a function of China's alienation from the U.S. And so Iran does offer, one, a foothold in the Middle East, and two, obviously, um, oil resources that China needs. But the bigger concern here is that any sort of sort of friendly ties with Iran or direct support for the regime in Iran, the Ayatollah, that is a fuck you to the United States, right? The same, yeah. the same way that like Russia supporting North Korea is a fuck you to the United States. You provide aid, support, uh, eventually arms. It's a, it becomes a market for defense exports for weapons sales. Um, and so mm, yes. if, if there's a, if there's a modus vivendi between the U S and China, like a, a great power detente, like we had for, you know, most of the past generation, China will restrain its interactions with, you know, quote unquote, rogue states. I don't know how you would characterize Iran these days, but like, you know what I mean? It's fair, I'd say. Yeah. Question two, will the Libyan civil war end before the end of the year? I, I have to preface this. We don't expect you to be right on a lot of these predictions. It's not so much okay. about the actual prediction. It's more about the conversation at Spurs because there's yeah. really no way to tell. But we can, Well, that doesn't mean I can't be right. 
Um, I, I would say, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to say no, the Civil War will not end before the end of the year, in part because there are a lot of parties on the ground. Uh, like yeah. there's, It's a very fragmented series of constituencies fighting. There's multiple outside powers involved, too. And I think Russia is uh, like a, a dominant outside player in Libya right now. But Egypt could end up involved as well, and that would not pacify things. That would only worsen things, I think. And like the in the regards to it being sort of a continuous and consistent security issue in the region, like Syria, mm. do you see it becoming that um, extensive in the region, like a as big a of a nightmare? You mean security issue? Yeah, like a complete geopolitical. Yeah, I mean yeah, like the modern <laughs> anarchy, like the place where everything yeah everything goes yeah. wrong. Yeah, there's a high risk of that actually. I don't like Russia being in Libya, obviously, but there's so much chaos and this the uh, Syria needed this too for a while. When you have like pure anarchy, you have to have somebody who's fucking mean going in and has power to establish order. Unless you're thriving off the chaos, you need to have a strong man, basically. And it's conceivable that Russia could be that, but I don't think, in Libya, but I don't think that the United States, outside of the Trump personally, I don't think the U.S. is willing to just cede that. Or local powers, right? Like, I am I am concerned about Egypt intervening here. Not so concerned that the EU is going to, I mean, the EU just doesn't have resources for this. But no. it's just a mess. And, like, if you had a, a superpower imposing its will on Syria 10 years ago, you would have saved a lot of lives. It would have been an unjust form of order. I would not have been democratic, sure, but it would have led to a lot of people not getting killed. And it might have even taken killing people in the process, paradoxically. A strong man is better than anarchy, right? Democrat democracy in some form is obviously like the preferred outcome, but it, you can't always get it, you know? Yeah, of course. And question three is, will we see moves towards significant political change in Lebanon following the Beirut explosion before December? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I... It's hard. It's a hard one. No, I was just saying, I did expect it. When I pitched the question to Jake, I didn't expe uh, expect an easy answer out of this. <laughs> so I hope you don't mind there. There will be public protests before December. I can envision that. Like, that's that's imminent. Do the... I haven't been tracking why this explosion happened. It seems like the re reports are indicating it's like an accident, which yeah, which hints, yeah, like negligence or incompetence. If you live in Lebanon, that's a huge fucking problem, you know? For sure, for sure. Yeah, I heard that it was improperly stored ammonium nitrate that caused it, and there was fireworks, fire in the fireworks factory, which so, was all fireworks storage nearby. That's a very dumb well, reason to have problem. such a huge explosion, yeah. Well, it's... Uh... Production market this week. All right. Time for Say Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. So, uh, Stay Off Twitter this week, uh, I've got two. One from our man Matt Duss, friend of the pod. He says, Imagine the administration had intelligence on an imminent terrorist attack that would kill over 100,000 people and chose to do nothing because it was politically easier. 
Well, that's what we've done here. We need to be referring to the coronavirus, obviously. We need to be talking about accountability for all of it. And war level numbers of casualties um, because of bad decision making. A lot of this had to do with the personalization of like investing Jared Kushner with responsibility for tackling this. And then he drops the fucking ball. And so you sweep it all under the rug by simply ignoring the problem. You downplay the fact that there even is a problem at all, which, you know, Trump has gone on the news shows doing. And yeah. so this is serious. Like it's the space of public policy, but. When you're talking about this many people dead because of choices you've made, this is worse than a lot of wars. 100,000 yeah, people is. dead. For sure. It's, um, accountability seems to be the buzzword this week for the Trump administration. Actually quite thankful. A dose of it was given in the latest uh, interview that Trump released. Did you see that, man? <laughs> oh, the Jonathan Swan Axios thing? Yeah, oh that was God. probably the most... Amazing. That was accountability at its finest. Follow-up question. How to ruin Donald Trump. All you had to do was say why or how yeah. or what are you yeah. talking about. That's all it took these past four years? We could have avoided fascism by fucking doing that? You know? Like, yeah. Yeah. God damn. Also, I've what? never been prouder of Australia. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great interview to watch Trump dig himself deeper into the hole and confirming to everyone even more that he doesn't know what he's doing and that he's an idiot. Yeah, yeah. Out of curiosity, why did it take so long for him to actually get an interview like this where it was, you know, calling him out? Like, I can't imagine any other interview that really showcased, I suppose, his incompetencies like this one really did. There was like a, wi just me? a witch's brew of things here. One is that Jonathan Swan, one of the reasons why this went viral is because Jonathan Swan's, his reactions to Trump on the spot <laughs> were like very For honest sure. reactions, <laughs> like the weird faces and stuff. Like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> uh, and so there was like a viral element to it. But also like most of the media that Trump does is friendly media. Yeah, Fox is. News is not going to yeah. grill him, you know. And he does, he has done like morning shows and mainstream media. and He's been on CNN. But those fucking mainstream people have a tendency to pull their punches. Like, they get outplayed yeah. by Trump's craziness. They go in treating Trump like he's just any other politician. And then Trump darts forward with all these lies and he jumps from lie to lie. And like they, they like lose their um, their ballast, like they lose their ability to just follow through. Like, why are you asking a question in the first place? And like I've been in the on like on TV situations before where it's like, okay, the camera's on, you're dealing with like a live situation. And so whatever comes out of your mouth comes out of your mouth and you don't want it to be the wrong thing. <laughs> and yeah. so your mind is like very narrow in that moment. If the person in front of you does something that is surprising or says something that you're not expecting, your ability to process that in real time is very small. And so like <laughs> all, you, all you're thinking about is like, I don't want to fuck up. You know, and it doesn't matter how many times you've been on TV, like the fact that it's all happening in real time makes it very and you, you're conscious that like you have a time limit, you know, like it's two minutes till the mm. commercial break or whatever. And so you have to speak in sound bites. You don't it's not a format. Uh, it's not a medium that allows for like deep inquiry. You know, and I think they're like, I think some people are cowed by power, like they just want to show deference to the <laughs> office or something. <laughs> 
yeah. I mean, all yeah. of which raises the question why he, why Trump did is submitted to it. Like, why would he go out of his True. comfort zone and expose himself to a long form interview with a really tough interviewer in that way? I yeah. don't think he realized that that was the interview <laughs> he was going to get. I don't think yeah. that's what he was signing up for because that's all what it felt like. Because every time he talks to CNN or MSNBC, he's already called them the Lugan Presser. How more defensive can you get? But I don't think he knew what he was walking into with this one. Yeah, I think he thought he was. it was going to be like if you were talking to Jake Tapper on CNN or something where it's like, you can outplay this guy. And then it turns out that like, oh, if you just do the like the basics of journalism, you you freeze the idiot in his tracks. Oh, second tweet. Fuck. Forgot about the show. So from a buddy of mine, Jeffrey Miser, who teaches at the University of Portland, he this is not so much a hot take, which violates my like cardinal rule of stay off Twitter. But it's uh, it's an important discussion, and I promised to talk about it on the pod. So like, I didn't. This was this is how we'll do it. He says on Twitter, like, how do I become a non-resident fellow at a think tank, and is there any actual work that goes along with the title? So I say this not as a flex, but almost as like something that's pathetic. I have affiliations at uh, four different think tanks right now in real time. And I've okay. I've spent time at seven different think tanks uh, in the last six years. I'm pretty reasonably equipped to answer this question, especially because most of those fellowships are non-residency. So the question would be like, okay, so how did I end up being affiliated with X number of places? Let it like not just one, but like multiple. And the the only honest answer is complete fucking idiosyncrasy like who you know there's value that think tanks see in you depending on what kind of work you do so like if they're super interested like my i have a couple profiles or brand associations right progressive foreign policy asian security hardcore korea like all things korea basically and then like a little bit of grand strategy, a little a little bit of like security technology. And that's my shtick. Like anything outside of those areas, others are not likely to be interested in me, right? And so on the basis of those different research agendas or those different areas of commentary, sometimes I, I will get reached out to by an institution that wants me to um, do some work for them or like commission me. And those those opportunities sometimes will require that you have an affiliation with the institution. So it's like if the institution will decide, oh, if, if you're going to do some work for us, you have to be affiliated with us. And so in order to do the work, they'll give you an affiliation as like an adjunct senior fellow or a non-resident fellow or whatever. And, and that happens. And that's on the basis of your own um, credibility or whatever as a expert in the thing that they're interested in. That is not the majority of cases. The majority of cases are like, you know people at a think tank, you're part of their social circle, and you have a like compatible worldview with kind of the, the worldview that, that that think tank promotes. They either will informally grant you a title, is just like a empty thing, you know? Um, it's a nice to have, it goes on your byline, but it's you don't have to do anything for it. It's almost like your friend is giving you something for free, but it doesn't cost anything. 
And so that is like, that is the case a lot of times. But it also happens that like, especially for a fellowship that involves money um, or like it's paid, there will be like uh, an open call where they put out an actual advertisement and they collect CVs and then they vet the different applications that people submitted. And it's like a normal, almost like a normal hiring process, right? Except focused on whatever kinds of, of research fellowship it is. Sometimes too, especially if it's like a more senior thing, like a senior fellow position, they'll put out a vacancy notice being like, oh, there's an opportunity to be a, you know, a senior fellow or a fellow at this think tank. If it's paid, um, sometimes they will technically hire, put out a vacancy notice, but actually informally they'll hire a headhunter and like do a talent search. And the talent search turns up usually people that are like in their network already anyway, or like people that they know and are comfortable with. You get uh, into a think tank because part of the right social circle, you're producing research that vibes with that think tank. You've applied cold to take a position that has been advertised. These are all the different ways that you end up in. And most of these, except for like doing good work, these are not things that are like in your control. So yeah. Yeah. your your affiliations with think tanks, like when I see them, I'm not in, on other people. I'm not impressed by them at all. I I use them as a measurement of like, okay, what is this person about? Who does this person know? Like it's it's like insights into their social circle more than anything and possibly their worldview. And so sometimes the affiliation will require work. Some, like I said, sometimes that's the premise. Uh, other times it will not. It's And it's all very idiosyncratic. So I just thought I would put that out there because it's like uh, it can be valuable. It's not inherently valuable. Cool. So for my tweet of the week, bit of a long one. This is a cool tweet thread from Yuna Wong, who's a defense analyst at the Institute for Defense Analysis and the coordinator of the RAND Center for Gaming. So uh, in this particular tweet, she goes, War is an extension of politics. But let's be honest, war games can also be extension of politics. Uh, so today we'll talk about how to deliberately mislead with war games. So for sure, go check out this like entire thread and how she plays it out and how she goes into it. Um, but essentially, what she does is an exercise to mislead the, the players in this example war game. She goes into how it plays out by saying that one way to mislead is deliberately conflate the players learning how to play the game with the benefit of her example. And by the end of it, the key lessons that she highlights are, firstly, how the importance of players being comfortable with the game rules uh, before you test anything is super important. And to repeat the gameplay recommended as it does highlight the weaknesses and areas for improvement. Um, I figure this is basically your neck of the woods fan. So if you had any hot takes on it, that'd be pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I've, the, the tweet thread is quite long and it dresses a lot of particulars in a sort of hypothetical war game and how you can use it to manipulate perceptions or try and move policy with, with a war yeah. game itself. And I've talked about this before because war games are the outputs of war games. The results of a war game are very often big drivers of debates. It's like ammunition for arguments about things that ultimately end up costing money or costing lives. And war games help adjudicate big decisions about force structure and about strategy. And the there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Actually, war games are super valuable. But if you know what goes into making a war game, which uh, she obviously does, and this is something I teach, you end up, like, you cannot avoid knowing that 
there are a million ways to juke the stats. There are a million ways to yeah. manipulate <laughs> a war game to produce an outcome that you want. If you if you don't want to play it honestly or process it honestly, there are lots of ways to do that. So you when an argument about policy or about the defense budget is pinned on the fact that in I mean, this happened in the Obama administration, like a guy who was like he wasn't my boss, but he was a guy who was above me in the Pentagon. He went public with a war game where the U.S. fought China and his his famous quote was that the U.S. got its ass handed to it by China. And he was using that argument and the results of that war game to argue for all of these new high-tech capabilities, long-range munitions and greater spending on advanced R&D and all this other stuff. He was basically trying to justify huge expenses for the defense budget on for force structure based on the fact that in this war game, the U.S. got its ass handed to it by China. But there is no public display of the details of that war game, and it doesn't inherently mean anything to say that, well, in this war game, we got our ass handed to us, the therefore we should invest bigly in fucking you know, F-35s or something, there's nothing inherently logical about that. You have to be very suspicious uh, as, as a public, um, but as a policymaker too, when somebody comes to you with an argument based on a war game result. And I say that as somebody who's like a huge advocate of war games, it's great for helping you think through risks, identify what your real priorities are, stress test your strategy, road test new strategies in a, you know, yeah, a sure. cost-free virtual environment before it goes live. Like there's so much you can do with a war game if you know what you're doing and you're trying to play it straight up, right? And you've got the right people involved. But there's lots of ways that it can fucking go bad. There's nothing automatically sacrosanct or valid about a war game. It, they're actually not a great basis for making policy arguments, even though they are valuable. In this particular example, they only just run through it once, too. Like, they just ran through it <laughs> once and they're like, oh, yeah, this is why we need, like, all this extra shit. Yeah, I mean, or... this is the problem, too, is like, War games generally, especially the way the Pentagon does them, are very not heavy-handed is not the right word. They're like very intense. Like they they involve a lot of effort, a lot of labor, um, and time. And so when war games are very intricate and complicated, inherently you're limited by time and resources. You can't run that same war sure. game that many times. You can't run very too many variations of the game. And like, it's only by repetition that you get reliability. Like, how else are you going to know whether your insights are idiosyncratic or noise errors, uh, or it's like a genuine systematic observation over and over and over? Like, you have to play it over and over and over or something like that. Yeah, for sure. And so there's actually a lot of value in doing stream, like, I prefer doing streamlined versions of war games that are simpler, like almost like tabletop exercises. Because you get more bites like, at the apple. You get to try yeah. it. You mean like our classes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trying to rush through in one period. I mean, even that is like, was pretty involved, like to get to the point yeah, where you can, sure. it, you play it in the span of three hours or whatever, but it's like, that took still weeks to, for students to build, you know? And so like, when you're doing it in real life, a lot of times you'll only get 
one war game in a year on a given subject. And so oh, it's wow. like, okay. that's not enough, dude, or at least not yeah. enough to change your decisions. Like, I don't, I don't know. Um, this is a, the thread is worth reading in detail if this is your kind of thing. So it'll be on the uh, show notes. Let's jump into Armchair Analysis, where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it. Well, we'll crack straight into Armchair Analysis this week, and we're doing a piece titled, Oh God, Not the Peloponnesian War Again, in Foreign Policy by James Palmer, who I think we can say is a friend of the pod. I hope he's a friend of the pod. He's a super cool guy. I think so. (laughs) Um, And the piece is all about how American foreign policy analysis and generally Western foreign policy analysis tends to rely on the same kind of historical tropes like the Peloponnesian War or the Thucydides Trap. Um, And it was prompted by a speech from about a fortnight ago by US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, at the Richard Nixon Presidential Library. And one of the first questions was from the president of the Nixon Foundation, Hugh Hewitt, where he referred to ancient Greece. He compared the US to Athens as a naval power and China to Sparta as a land power. But as as Palmer writes, conflicts between city-states in a backwater Eurasian promontory 2,400 years ago are an unreliable guide to modern geopolitics, and they neglect a vast span of world history that may be far more relevant. And that's particularly true since not only are we relying on unreliable and limited historical tropes, but we're completely ignoring the historical lessons from the history of the power that the US is going up against, China. The history of Chinese warfare and the vast span of Asian conflict over you know the last 3,000 years doesn't get a look in. And so Palmer, in what I think is a really useful piece, provides 10 kind of interesting examples which foreign policy scholars can use to, to frame their analysis. One of the best, I think, um, is the Han Xiongnu conflict, where China's first true histori- historian, and I'm quoting from Palmer here, Sima Tian, uh, wrote that the Xiongnu, the rival power that forced subservience from the Yang Han Empire, existed as a parallel to the Chinese. When they were weak, the Chinese would be strong and vice versa. We might dub this the Sima Tian trap, the construction of a foreign enemy as a mirror to your own culture, rather than an economic, political and military opponent in its own rights and with its own challenges. And, you know, even from that one example, you can see a really brilliant push to, one, expand our range of thinking and to capture some of the kind of analytical fallacies that we fall into. So I I thought it was a fantastic piece. What did you think, Ben? Yeah, I mean, in a broad sense, I completely agree. We've we've hit this theme before of like the limitations or the blind spots that arise or the logical fallacies that arise, the risks that arise when you pin um, your understanding of, of world events and of IR on a very like limited selection of cases and that's just that's a logical problem that in ir research you're trying to set up a research design that accounts for that stuff this is this is why you have to like show rigorous logic in everything down to the cases that you're selecting like what is it you're trying to learn what is the purpose of looking at particular cases right and the the classic way that this goes wrong is the way we're so over invested in Thucydides, uniquely so, right? Peloponnesian War, 
But uh, in general, like Western history, Greek and Roman history, it's not that it's unimportant. It's that we're over leveraged in it. And that's risky because different parts of the world have different experiences. And so and the Eastern, quote unquote, IR turn, Asian IR goes goes too far in certain ways. James Palmer is highlighting the right thing and highlighting that, like, we're overusing the Peloponnesian War and just picking on a few you know, almost random prominent cases in ancient Asian security, if you want to think of it like that, he's able to show all of this sort of potential in Asian history that's going like largely untapped. I think that is super valid. Um, my concern is that in the rush to embrace diversity of cases, because there's lots of latent value there, we actually reject established knowledge and that would be stupid and that's risky and that's where like my one of my concerns about the eastern ir turn such as it is is that they are treating in a historical sense in an ir sense they're treating it the world like okay europe for europeans asia for asians and that's a little bit racist and not not actually not logical so like my concern is about an overcorrection but um mm. the mm. solution to that is when you seize on something like, you know, Han versus Xiongnu conflict in fucking 206 BC, don't be a racist and be like, well, that perfectly captures the great power competition between China and the US because that wasn't a great power competition, dude. And you know what was a great power competition? Fucking Athens and Sparta. So it's not that one is better at explaining Sino-US rivalry than another. It's that when you select the case, you have to justify your selection and applicability of the case. And so you can use Peloponnesian War shit if you want, but it has to be defensible. And a lot of my, my bigger concern that James Palmer hints at is that people engage with Thucydides in like a very armchair, what armchair analysis, fuck, in a very like armchair kind of way, you know, like superficial. Hmm. If, if you have a facile Wikipedia understanding of the Peloponnesian War, but you've never engaged deeply with it or with the intellectual source material that's around it, there's a huge risk of botching or like oversimplifying what the insight is. And like one of the problems with Thucydides in particular, it's not how prominent he is, although that's an issue, it's how much people misappropriate him through bad or incomplete readings of Thucydides or by applying insights from Thucydides that don't apply to the thing they're applying it to. And so there's this question of, of congruence or fit between case selection and the like form of analysis you're doing or the insight that you care about or the puzzle you're trying to answer. And so you just need to be logical all the way down. And that means you should not be overinvested in one region versus another. And you should be open to multiple regions. There's no way you can argue against pluralism of like where you're getting your source material from. Yeah. You, you have to endorse pluralism in that sense. You have to be open to Asian cases and you have to be willing to divest a little bit from the Western tradition. Just don't overdo it. You know what I mean? That's all I would say. Mm, no, totally. That makes total sense. Yeah. I mean, it's the same with anything, right? You want to just accumulate as many possible sources of knowledge as you can, as opposed to dismissing any out of hand. Yeah. What's the, say, like the, the science saying? Like, all data is useful, 
right? Mm. More, the more data, the better, assuming you know how to deal with it. And it's that how to deal with it part where theory comes in, where research design comes in, you know? That's the part that's lost in also, all these things. Logic all the way down might just have to be the new motto of this podcast. There we go, baby. <laughs> that and not a Marxist. <laughs> all right, time for Ask Me Anything, where people ask me anything. Okay, so first question this week for is from Hitchophile. Do you often face being called racist? Juice being so outspoken on the CCP. So I feel like this question calls me a racist. No, it, it's, I, <laughs> I, I, I took this question from a good friend of mine um, on uh, a site called Discord. And he, <laughs> I, I, I read that question and he really doesn't mean, he finishes the yeah. question with, obviously you are not, but how do you navigate it nonetheless? Like, how do you navigate um, possibility of maybe being called a racist due to being hardline on the CCP's policy positions? Yeah, I mean, I've seen in, not so much in the US, but in Australia, the China debate, the accusations of racism were, were like a very uh, frequently used tactic of people who were pro-CCP, pro-Xi Jinping or whatever, people who were against, people who were against the China hawks in Australia would accuse the China hawks of being racist. Like that was a, a frequent trope. I haven't been a- accused of that. Like it is a thing, but um, this is yeah. why logic matters. Like the arguments that you make risk being construed as racist if you make them in terms that are like clash of civilizations y or primordial, or it's like mm. if the problem is China all the way down, like if that when you center all your threat perceptions on the actor rather than on the actor's conduct and expected conduct, you can easily end up in that trap, right? And this is why it's problematic for people like fucking Mike Pompeo, fuck you, Mike, to go and give speeches <laughs> yeah, about... Yeah, fuck you, Mike. Yeah, fuck you, Mike. Uh, that should be on a t-shirt. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, he gives this this speech, I mean, a number of speeches where it's like he presents China as this totalizing ideological global threat. Everybody talks about a cold war and the Soviet Union and red scare stuff. This is this is more of like Nazi Germany. Like this is more of treating China like Hitler and Xi Jinping like Hitler. And that might ultimately be correct. I want to keep open that possibility because they're committing a genocide in their own borders, right? So like we should be yeah. sensitive to the possibility that China is Nazi Germany, but when when you are banking entirely on that claim and you're not really validating the claim well guess what man even i think that that's a little racist you've got to be sensitive to that and the best way to guard against it is to only make valid claims try to avoid the like overly broad characterizations i guess so the second question is from a georgetown student how do you publish in foreign affairs is there a difference writing for the online versus print editions very interesting question so it's idiot publishing anywhere tends to be kind of idiosyncratic um foreign affairs is uniquely kind of like elite or elitist it's hard to get in you could there's a formal portal where you can apply so if you're just uh, gonna su- send in a submission cold there's a system that's very um 
automatic that will technically vet you and somebody probably an intern will like look at your piece and probably reject it um the way you really get in foreign affairs is either by like having a big name or knowing one of the people on the editorial staff and the ability to reach out to somebody on a masthead or on an editorial team directly and pitch them that is the uh, most direct route and the most common route um, when you just submit cold it can work it's not super likely um, i haven't published in foreign affairs in probably like a year or two but the first time that i did it i sub i submitted cold but i also used a friend who had published in foreign affairs recently i was like hey who, who do you submit your submissions to and he told me that it was uh, so-and-so editor. He offered to put me in touch with the proviso that I had a specific idea that I was already ready to pitch. And so the setup of like brokering that virtual introduction, it wasn't just like, hey, there's this smart guy who does Korea stuff just generally if you ever want to reach out. It wasn't that kind of generic thing. It was like, hey, one of my buddies who's a really smart Korea guy has this really good take on you know what's happening with North Korea right now um, and he wanted to pitch you so I wanted to put you in touch and then that was the segue to then have a pitch with an article ready and so like everything was prepped and ready to go and it was in it was a novel take and it was in line with current events because um, foreign affairs is obviously very interested in current events so like that was it um, and there's a huge difference between online and in print for foreign affairs not always for other publications, but for foreign affairs there is. As I understand it, the print edition is set from the top by whoever the editor-in-chief is or like CEO of the publication working with the head of the Council on Foreign Relations because it's Council on Foreign Relations owns foreign affairs. And they decide, one of the reasons like when you buy a print edition of foreign affairs that it's like 95% policy celebrities writing in it is because they're basically reaching out to people in their network to write stories and they're all celebs to write stories that they decided needed to be written so they basically like decide what kinds of of analyses they want to constitute the next issue and then they find people who will do that and for the most part that's how it works and for the online one, there's a lot more. You can push stuff to them. But when it's the print edition, they're pulling people in. So you have less control. It's even harder to get into the print edition. So that's basically that. The third question is from Anonymous. Wanted your take on the Aspen Institute and Aspen Security Forum. Prestigious, elitist, both or neither, also, have you ever spoken at one of their conferences? If so, why? And if not, why not? Prestigious, elitist, both, neither. Um, yes. It's <laughs> <laughs> if I had like um, policy celebrity bingo, this would be one of the crucial items on the bingo card. If you're trying to check all the boxes of like climbing the ladder of, of think tankery wonkery, Aspen Institute events, Aspen Security Forum, are like right up there at the top of the most prestigious. It's very, very plutocratic. You are definitely serving moneyed interests, right? So you don't get a lot of, you know, traders to the financial sector um, getting inside that tent. It's so baller and it's so high, not just high profile, but like 
prestigious and like very well manicured, very well funded, all like influential players involved on that basis. I've always, it's always been my white whale. Like I would love to go to one or get invited to one, but like, I'm also the kind of person that they would like never fucking invite anybody who like has pretensions of truth to power or who's going to be critical of capital is not getting an invite to that shit. They invite people like fucking HR McMaster and John Bolton. You know, like that's that fucking world. So uh, I'm not getting an invite to that anytime soon. And because of that, I say, well, fuck those guys. Um, But actually, like, if I'm being honest, I would love to, you know, go spend a weekend in Aspen and think big thoughts and have exquisite food and everything. So the fourth question is from Bilbo Swaggins. How do you manage your time, especially around commissions and teaching? Oh. Time management is a bitch. Yeah, I have a lot of stuff going on. It's difficult to talk about because it sounds, I mean, it can sound like a flex to be like, oh, I'm so busy. And in the US, there used to be this, like at least when I was coming up, like there was a a norm or a habit where people in the professional class, like you say, hi, how are you doing? And it invited the answer, oh, I'm so busy. Like the answer to how you're doing was always busy. That's really fucking not healthy for one thing, but it also spoke to a mindset where like busyness was a virtue and the opposite was a problem. You know, I'm like sort of reluctant to talk about how busy I am, but I'm super fucking busy. I know everybody's busy. The thing that is important for me is that like, if you're going to live a life where like you're constantly doing shit, It would be valuable to you, to your mental health, to be constantly doing shit that is in line with what you value and like things that you're interested in. I'm very lucky in that respect. Like I, you guys know from the fucking Slack chats, I wake up super fucking early, (laughs) you know, and even after my kid is down at night, I'm working for a couple hours while the TV is on in the background um, and I'm working all the hours in between that I can. I'm like juggling life and work shit just like everybody else. I'm stretched in a million directions because of all of these fucking think tank affiliations, plus my day job of teaching, plus research, the fucking book I've got, these co-authored fucking things I've got, random consultation requests, which is where like real money can be sometimes. And it's, it's fucking lot. And then like the podcast and writing letters for people. I'm not saying I don't like writing letters for you guys, um, but the, like, <laughs> the amount just fucking, you know, working out like the amount of shit and like trying to be like a decent, you know, husband, father, like not losing all of that in the process. Like that's a lot of shit, dude. The, the lucky thing with me is like, it's all shit. Like I wanted to be affiliated with think tanks. I want to write a book. I want to work on co-authored projects. I want to teach, you know, I want to get paid to consult. Like I want to fucking do all these things that I'm spending my time on. So like, I, I feel like I cannot complain because it could be way worse. And like in the beginning of my career, it's like, fuck, even before I had a career, I was working at a fucking Greyhound racing track. I worked at a fucking Wendy's selling burgers like on the fry. St- I, <laughs> I, I was not even on the fry station at first. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was just floors. And so like is fucking Kanye West song. And so like the, <laughs> I'm, I've, I've lived periods where like I'm spending all my time doing shit and hustling and it's exhausting and it's stuff that I hate doing. 
And that is an awful space to be in. So it's like, at least if you're doing all, you're working 20 hours a day, but it's like doing shit that is like in line with your spirit. That's the key, yeah. you know? In terms of time management, I use post-it notes to keep lists of like tasks and shit like that, but that's it. Otherwise, I'm actually really bad at time management. Follow-up question. Do you get a student amount, student's amount of sleep, uh, which means not much at all? Probably, yeah. Like four hours to six hours. I've, I've always woken up early, but between having a, a kid and now having a fucking dog, there, it wouldn't be possible for me to sleep in past like 6 a.m. anyway. If I get up, I'm, you know, I get up at like maybe 5, sometimes a little earlier. And that time is valuable time for me to do shit. But even if I tried to sleep in, I don't think it would work. Um, so enjoy it while you can. Hey, Van, do, out of curiosity, do people ever point out like your tweet timestamps? Because sometimes yeah, I see I it and I'll be like, three hours ago. Yeah. And I'm like, that was 4 a.m. <laughs> Um, no, actually, but, uh, that's how I keep up with the DC. I like people wonder if I'm in oh, DC definitely. all the time and I'm like <laughs> tweeting on their time zone to a large extent. But honestly, man, I consider myself like a pretty opinionated individual, but how do you put so much stuff on Twitter? Like, how do you have that many thoughts? Because <laughs> like, like, <laughs> I'm maximum like two an hour. To, it's probably smarter to like withhold your opinions. For one thing, I feel like I have a I have some sort of qualifications to speak out on certain issues, and I have a vantage point from being here on Washington that like a lot of people don't have. And so I, there's a sense I have some sense of obligation to be honest because I know a lot of people in Washington literally cannot be like their the environment doesn't permit it. And so like no one in Washington is going to say something more radical than what I'm going to say or what I can say right? Like they're more inhibited than me. So in some ways I'm defining the outer boundaries or sometimes even past the boundaries of what respectable opinion in Washington could ever be. I'm part of an Overton window in some sense indirectly. And like, uh, that requires me to be engaged. Um, and then two, I have to prepare for stay off Twitter. And then three, my, th I don't think I've ever said this before. My fucking secret on Twitter, I have a lot of posts I spend actually like frighteningly little time on Twitter. This, this is what I do. I oh shit! I open I'm sorry. it. I'm, <laughs> yes. sorry. I'm sorry, man. <laughs> oh shit! The amount of stuff I see, there's no way that you spend no so, amount of time on Twitter. So this is this is what I do. I open up Twitter. I see the top tweet at my on my timeline. Um, and if it's something that is like an ad or boring or I'm not interested in it, I'll scroll down a little bit until I see something that's interesting. I immediately okay. respond to whatever that thing is. And if I happen to see a second tweet on the timeline as I'm doing that, I'll also <laughs> respond to that one. And then I post and then I leave. And then I don't, I, I'm so I'm like, I'm in Twitter for like three minutes, five minutes, and then I'm out. And then I'll check back in a couple later, a couple hours later, just to see if 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 anything went crazy. Because sometimes like shit will go viral, or like uh, you get like a ton of notifications on something, and that happens. And so like I just check to see the like the volume of the tweet, you know. And um, occasionally like somebody will make a good point that I'll notice, and so like we'll have a conversation. A lot of times it just stirs shit, and so like I'll just ignore it because it generates a bunch of like negative shit. 
Um, and then like, as I go in to look at notifications, I'll see like one other tweet on the timeline or something and then respond to that. And then that's it. And that'll, I'll, I'll do that like twice in a day. And then that's it. And you'll see on my timeline, my tweets are clustered. It'll be one amazingly beautiful, profound tweet. And then <laughs> one minute later, it'll be another amazingly beautiful, profound tweet. And then like <laughs> maybe another one minute later. And then there's like nothing for nine hours, 12 hours, 24 hours. And so it's clustered like that because like I'm just I'm diving into Twitter and diving out. Because like if I just stay on Twitter and I'm just scrolling all day, my brain stops working. And my heart starts racing. And like, it, it, it shit is bad for you. <laughs> All right, gang, that's going to do it. WPR.pub slash undiplomatic for the World Politics Review newsletter, our sponsor. And buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic to send us money. Catch you next time. Peace.